How blessed we are to be together upon this first day of the week. We're certainly thankful for each and every one and thankful for the songs that have been sung, for the reminder of our Lord's sacrifice and for the opportunity we have to consider His Word. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the account that we find in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. Here we have the, the wonderful example of Joseph taking his family to Jerusalem for the Passover to fulfill God's command with that regard. A wonderful example of a father providing spiritually for his family. We pick up the account in Luke 2, verse 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? This must have been an incredibly difficult situation for his parents. You know that they loved him and that they were very concerned for him. Verse 48, his mother says, we sought you sorrowing. There's probably no greater grief that a parent can experience than thinking about the loss of a child, whether we deal with it in a physical or a spiritual sense. And here they had gone a day's journey and thought that they had lost their son. But when they find him, they find him in the temple and they were amazed to see him there. They were surprised to see him there. You know, it's interesting because when you, when you see some of the uh, ideas of people in the religious world, you might see a picture of all these doctors of the law sitting and Jesus as a 12-year-old standing and teaching them. But that's not what the, the account says. The account says that he asked them questions and that he listened and provided a response. And they were surprised at his responses. So, yes, I guess we could say in one sense, some teaching was being done. But he wasn't lecturing them. He wasn't telling them what they were to, to understand. He was very much submissive unto them and asking questions and listening to their answers and discussing those things. And yet when we look at this whole situation and his mother's response, Jesus suggests they should have known. They should have known that this would be the place that he would be. He says, in effect, did you not know I must be about 
my father's business. There are many people today that are like the parents of Jesus. They're seeking him. In all sincerity, they want to find him. But they're looking in the wrong places. I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the idea of where will you find Jesus. And we want to use this as kind of a template in looking at the way things were and the way things are. So first we want to think about where you're not going to find Jesus. You're not going to find Jesus in the temple keeping the law of Moses. In verse 46 it tells us that's where they found him. But you're not going to find him there today. And the answer behind that is real simple. You're not going to find him because Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 17, he says, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill. So when we think about fulfilling something, that means you end it. You, you take a prescription to the druggist and the druggist, he or she fulfills that prescription, it's over. You don't keep going back unless, obviously, there is a prescription that allows for any number of refills. But once it's filled, if you're supposed to get 30 tablets, that's all you get. It's done. It's over. The, subscription, the prescription has been fulfilled. When you complete paying off a mortgage or a loan of some, point, uh, of some type, you don't keep paying afterwards. When something is completed, it's done. It's over with. Jesus said, I came to complete the law, to fulfill the law. And he did that when he died on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Paul was inspired to write, And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, or he's made alive, together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. So once all of our sins, all of our trespasses are forgiven, we now come back to life. The, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6, talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2, talks about that here in Colossians chapter 2. When we are recovered from our sins, removed from our sins, we're made alive. And then he said, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So Paul said, those things that dealt with the law were shadows. Those ordinances that were, were given were nailed to the cross. They were taken out of the way. And that law no longer binds us. Because once the blood of Jesus Christ was shed, that was the institution for a new covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, For there is verily a disannulment of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness of it. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And then in chapter 9, verse 15, it says, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death 
For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that with the shedding of blood and the institution of the New Testament, he not only removed the old, but took care of all the problems under it. It was not sufficient in and of itself. It was simply pointing to the new, and once the new came, it took care of everything. If you go back to the law, you won't find Jesus there. You're not going to find Jesus in men's traditions. We find him in Luke's gospel, sitting in amidst the doctors, both hearing them and asking questions. Jesus was willing to learn from others as a child, to ask questions, to submit unto them in respect of them. But as an adult, he demonstrated that he understood not only God's law, but could see how men could corrupt that law. In Matthew 15, beginning in verse 7, he said to these doctors of the law, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There are many people who are sincere in their desire to serve God. When they speak, they speak of their love for God. When they speak of the Lord, they speak of their love for the Lord. And yet we find that far too many people in our world follow the traditions of men, the doctrines of men, the teaching of men. Men can't save us, good men can't save us. Kind men can't save us. Religious men can't save us. And that's because very simply, man does not in and of himself know the way. Jeremiah was inspired to write in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We cannot know the outcome of this life. And even when it is our desire to do the very best that we possibly can do, we can't guarantee in and of our own selves that the very best will be the outcome. Unless and until we follow the Lord, then we find ourselves following men. And if you choose to follow men in their traditions, you won't find Jesus there. There's another place that you're not going to find Jesus. You're not going to find Jesus among relatives and friends. His parents, in losing him, assumed he would be with relatives and kinfolk. And you know, it's a wonderful thing when we have relatives that can share in our zeal for God. And we should feel blessed if that is the case. If we have grandparents and we have cousins and we have aunts and uncles and parents who are all involved in serving God according to his will. We should find comfort in that and be thankful that we have those examples that we can point to. And yet at the same time, we need to clearly understand that each and every one of us must give an account 
of our own life. And that even in looking at the lives of others and being thankful for those lives, we're not to follow them, we're to follow the Lord. In looking at what we can read in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, beginning in verse 34, he said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying, my purpose is to create discord. My purpose is to create fighting among families. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is that by his coming and by his teaching, there's going to be discord. Individuals we know, especially in the first century, who wanted to continue to follow the law of Moses would be set against their parents or children who would follow the gospel. We know that there was discord. We know that there was persecution where individuals of the same household would turn one against another. So Jesus, in effect, is simply saying, you've got to make a choice in your life. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to follow your family? Peter, in Matthew chapter 19, said in verse 27, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? If you practice a religion because it's the religion that your family has practiced, then you're not looking in the right place for Jesus. Another place you're not going to find Jesus is on a throne in Jerusalem. In Luke's account of this event, of course, they go back to Jerusalem. And there are a lot of people that, that have that concept that that's where they're going to find Jesus. He was found in Jerusalem, but he said that's because his business at that time was there. Verse 49, wished you not that I should be about my father's business. And yet when we look at the denominational world, there are many people today that believe that's where they're going to find Jesus. They talk about the idea of his coming back, that he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. They today think like the Jews of the first century did. That, that David would come back and that David would fight a battle to defeat his enemies and establish his throne in Jerusalem and there he would reign and bless all the people. And there are many people today who think that's what's going to happen. They think Jesus is going to leave heaven. He's going to gather together an army and physically go and fight against the forces of evil and then set up a throne in Jerusalem. Why? Would God need to fight anybody? He that can create all things with his voice can destroy all things with that same voice. Why would Jesus need to return from heaven? If he is all powerful, he doesn't need to leave there to do anything. But there are individuals who will tell you he's coming back. There are no scriptures in the New Testament that indicate unto us that he will set foot on the earth. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, when it says that he ascends into heaven, the disciples were told, you're going to see him 
come back in like manner. And Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, talked about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. That's where we meet him. He's not coming back to set foot on the earth. And then it says, so shall we ever be with him. Where? Where he's there. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you. That's the image in, in 1 Thessalonians 14 that cor corresponds, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4 that corresponds with John 14. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. I'm going to come back so that you can be with me. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's going to come down to welcome everybody back. So there is no setting up a kingdom. The kingdom exists now. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is on the throne now. If you are looking for Jesus in Jerusalem, you're looking in the wrong place. Hebrews 8 verse 1, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices whereof it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So if, if one wishes to look in Jerusalem, you're not going to find him there. You're not going to find Jesus in worldly wisdom. Again, we, we find in Luke's account in verse 40 of Luke 2, it says the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And then we find him asking questions. And it says in verse 46 of Luke 2, both hearing them and asking them questions. So he did listen to what it was they were saying. But he understood God's will. And certainly as he grew, we find our Lord teaching that will and not the wisdom of men. Many today seek to impress us with their wisdom, with their academic achievements. And I'm, I'm not talking about people in the, in, in the academic world. I'm talking about people in the religious world, quote unquote. They want us to know about all the uh, accolades they've had religiously given unto them. And again, we don't want to ever denigrate any achievement that anyone has ever made. But certainly in looking at things from a spiritual sense, having an achievement granted by men does not equate to being commended by God. In Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he mentions the distinctive difference between the wisdom of men and the simplicity of God's will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So there's a, there's a big distinction there. That men would say, that's foolish. Whereas we say, no, that's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. If someone were to tell you that the way you defeat death is by dying, that wouldn't make any sense, but that's exactly how God defeated death. If someone were to tell you that the way you destroy evil is by teaching the truth, that wouldn't make any sense to them, but that's exactly how it's done. Men look at one way to equate it with another way, and God said his way of doing things is opposite of that. That he can use the weak to destroy the strong. He can use things that don't seem to exist to destroy that which does exist. So if you're looking for Jesus in worldly wisdom, you just won't find him there. You won't find him in a tomb. He's not a dead prophet. He is a living Lord. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And these women came for a good reason. They wanted to complete the process of the burial that was so hastily done before the Passover. They wanted to honor Jesus and complete the ritual that needed to be done. And when they got there, their thought was, wait a minute, who's going to roll away the stone? But it was already rolled away. And so when they see the angel inside, in effect, he says, the Savior is not here. He is risen. He is risen, he is resurrected, never to die again. If you're looking for Jesus in a grave 
or in a tomb, you won't find him there. Where will you find Jesus? Well, you're going to find him in his church among his people. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Ephesians chapter 1, we learn that the church is the body of Christ, the people of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. But the body of Christ, his church, continues to live. You're going to find Jesus in the scriptures because that's where he said he would be found. To the Jewish leaders of his day in John's gospel, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 37, it says, The Father himself which sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John clearly tells us in the very beginning of his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 of John 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He identifies him in verse 17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When Paul is preaching the gospel. And he comes to the city of Berea, having left Thessalonica. We read in verse 11 of Acts chapter 17, it says, but these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So here are individuals in Berea who in hearing what Paul says immediately go to the scriptures to see if it is so. That's where we're going to learn of Jesus. That's where we're going to find him in the scriptures. You're going to find him doing the Father's will. That's what he said when his parents came to find him. He said in verse 49 of Luke's gospel, How is it that ye sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my Father's will? He said while he was on the earth, 
that this was his purpose, to do the will of the Father. Again, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 8 and in verse 29, he said, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 9 and in verse 4, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is today. He said that it was his purpose to do the will of the Father. And he said that that even meant the giving of his own life. Matthew chapter 10. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 4. It said, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second by the which will. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The writer there is just making reference to the fact that sacrifice was necessary. But the ultimate sacrifice that that was pointing to was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so we learn the importance of doing the will of the Father. And Jesus himself said that that should be the ultimate goal of every disciple. Matthew 7 verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father in heaven. He did the will of the Father, pointing us to the Father that we would do the will of the Father. And when we do that, we will find the Lord there. And that leads us to thinking about, we will only find him in humbly and sincering submitting unto him. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 24, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have to submit to the will of the Father and following his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is only done when we obey the gospel, hearing the message that Jesus is the Christ, confessing him as the Christ, repenting of our sins and then being baptized for the remission of our sins, at which point he adds us to his body and we serve him as faithful disciples. And then if we serve him as faithful disciples, we have every guarantee that when the end comes, we will have nothing to fear because finally we will find him on his throne at judgment. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't want people to wait until Judgment Day to find Jesus. The reason the gospel is given is to tell us that he has come and that we can know exactly what we can do to find him and to serve him. Looking for Jesus is the right thing to do. But we must look where he is found. He is found in his word, he is found in his church, and he is found doing the will of our Heavenly Father. You're not going to find him in the world of men. You're not going to find him by their means or their wisdom. You can only find him by reading and obeying God's word. And then once you find him, his guarantee in submitting unto him and following him is that you can be with him now and unto eternity. Don't wait until it's too late to find Jesus. He wants you to find him. He's made every access available for you to find him. We want you to find him. And that's why we offer an invitation for you to examine your soul. Think about where you stand now. Are you with him or are you still seeking him? If you're still seeking, we can help you to find him. We can show you the scriptures. You can read for yourself. You can search the scriptures to know the truth. And then finding that truth, you can conform to his will and be saved by his blood. And if there's anyone we can help to obey the gospel this morning, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.